0: The Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB, has provided critical income support for millions of Canadians who lost employment in this pandemic. It's now set to expire for many Canadians at the end of June and for many more into the summer. Should it be extended? Should it be redesigned? Should it be expanded? On this episode of Uncommons, we try to answer these questions. And I'm joined by Carleton Professor and expert in social policy, Jennifer Robson. Now you have written an article recently for CD Howe, setting out the next steps the government should take, and you cover off a range of different concerns, but the one I'm most interested in is how we deal with the Canada Emergency Response Benefit in the months ahead. I'm curious if you were in charge, if you were making the decisions, whether you were Carla or Bill, what do you think is the best way forward with the CERB?
1: I'm going to try and do this like within the world of the possible as opposed to the world of magic wands.
0: That would be appreciated. Yeah.
1: I I like feasible policy. Um, So the impression that I have always had since the beginning of CERB was that the government announced it, intending very much for it to be a temporary measure, and that people who normally qualify for employment insurance benefits, both regular as well as sickness benefits, would automatically be transferred over to those. Because, I mean, first of all, that's kind of about half the story of how people have been applying for CERB. I am not one hundred percent sure that the intention isn't to pay for some portion of Serb using the EI funding account, in the in the within the Consolidated Revenue Fund or sort of you know that carve out within the CRF. And I think that that's you know generally speaking defensible policy. But I think there are two concerns with that. First is that the the very same administrative problems that we had with EI that led to the need to create CERB, right, just to cope with that level of demand and whatnot, those haven't suddenly disappeared in the last two, three months. So I have ongoing concerns about how do we figure out things like the requirement to do the biweekly reporting, the very low cap on employment income that we allow under the working while on claim. All of those things, I think, remain concerns. So if we can simplify working well on claim, like make it far more generous, we have to figure out some way of being able to handle the volume of those biweekly claims so that people don't have big interruptions or lags in their benefits. Because that's a, that's, a, that's a big problem, right? When people have already been out of work for a while. There's that piece. And then there's like the roughly 60%, right? In normal times, roughly 60% of unemployed people don't actually have access to the employment insurance benefit system either because they weren't paying in at all or they don't have quite enough hours or you know some combination thereof
0: it's a very very rigid regime i mean we've had constituents pre-pandemic that just missed the 700 hours in toronto and they have a very good explanation for why they missed it in one case that stands out a person had been sexually assaulted just horrible circumstance missed time from work to be a witness and they were short by just under 20 hours, and there is no flexibility in the legislation. So now that's one case, but there are millions of Canadians on CERB right now who won't qualify for EI. Now, for those who don't know exactly how CERB works, you're eligible for payments for four months, 16 weeks, and you can claim any time between March and October, but then you exhaust those benefits after those four months and potentially upwards of two million canadians who claim benefits starting in march now may see their benefits end in june and in the coming months so first stop should be to extend the serb beyond june
1: maybe yes maybe no this is where god having some better public data would be really helpful you know to be like let's be honest right so so my guess of about two million people who might be about to exhaust their serb come the beginning of july is based on looking at what's happening with average Serb amounts paid per individual claimant, and right now it's sitting at like just under six thousand bucks. So that's sort of telling me, like, you know, like let's assume a normal distribution, right? If that's where we know that the average is, then it, you know we're going to have these two tails. There's going to be a huge group of people that have only taken one payment, but then there's also going to be some share of people who have taken. You know who will now be on their fourth and final payment, and that number of people who are on their fourth and final payment is only going to grow. Like yesterday's job numbers, I think. You know, yes, there was a bit of good news in there, and that the the worst of the bleeding seems to have stopped. But the it's really clear how many millions of Canadians are still not back to work, right? And that there is huge amount of unevenness in terms of what sectors, uh, presence of kids, and of course gender is playing out in terms of how quickly people can get back to work. So. There's going to be a lot of exhaustors. Does that necessarily mean that we, that we renew CERB exactly as it is?
0: No, and that's a really good point. Let, let's, re, let's rephrase that. We need to extend an income support. We don't need to extend CERB as it is. I think there is general agreement in government right now that we can't possibly allow hundreds of thousands, millions, a, a huge number of Canadians move from what is a solid income support in a crisis to absolutely zero income support in July and August. There's an understanding that something needs to be done to continue some level of income support. The next question is, what is the best design and how can we administratively deliver it? It seems to me that it should be a negative income tax design. I mean, EI works along these lines to a degree. There's an attestation and a clawback. GIS for seniors works along these lines as well, though obviously not on a week to week or month to month basis. Do you have a sense of what would be best?
1: So uh, my instinct is to try and essentially, so like I said before, do the work to actually simplify and make, e, like basically grease the wheels of EI, if that's the system that we're going to be relying on for about the, what, 40% of unemployed people are going to switch over to that. And that transition, by the way, uh, is going to be really important, it needs to be communicated clearly to people and they need to understand behaviorally what it is that they need to do differently on EI versus SERB. But for the other 60%, I think that there's an equity issue. So obviously giving them zero is not the right approach, right? Otherwise, they end up falling further into the provincial social assistance systems. Provinces can't possibly absorb that right now. They don't, like, they just, they don't have the fiscal capacity or, frankly, the service delivery infrastructure to handle that. And it is a one-way street in so many cases. Like People do not easily come back from that, that fall. So what do we do if we create something at CRA? because clearly they've, they've proven their, their ability to do administration pretty quick. It pays, like I said in the CD how piece, pay something akin to employment insurance benefit levels. It probably needs to have a pretty simplified design relative to EI. I mean, EI is it's stupid complicated. You know, so I was on a call the other day with an academic who said like you need to have a PhD in EI to actually understand it, and it's true. So maybe we could do something at CRA that pays something like EI-level benefits, Mm -hmm. so it won't be as rich as CERB, and that has that reconciliation on a regular basis with declared earnings, we probably have to stick with, as we do with the Working Well on Claim program, right, kind of a, a, a trust but verify approach. So people, for example, might declare, this is what I made last month, and then we use that information to reconcile with their benefits going forward. That's on the income support side right? I think it's doable. No, I haven't costed it out. No, I haven't, you know, figured out the exact clawback rates and all the rest of it. I mean, the working, like I said, the working while on claim, I think is probably too aggressive, a working, a, a clawback rate right now. Like the amount, the cap on what you can earn per week, right? is just, it's, it's quite low for a lot of folks. From what we can tell, it seems to encourage work, but it doesn't necessarily encourage EI exit, right? Into financial security, which is That's what we want, right, is for people to regain their their financial security and welfare and well-being, rather. But the other piece I think that's really important to keep sight of on all of this is that more than just income support, EI also unlocks access to services, right? Like you can suddenly get access to all the part two employability stuff. You know, for some people, that's like they want to pursue self-employment. There's always a push-pull on that. Uh, Skills training, all that kind of stuff. And I realize, like, those services we have known for a long time are imperfect but they're important, right? And so we've also got to figure out for the people that are not going to be eligible for EI, how do we also make sure that they are going to be eligible for those kinds of of supports and services that will help them find new employment or find new ways of uh, working?
0: Right. I hadn't initially turned my mind to the different service capabilities as between CRA and EI, so that may change my view, actually. My thinking at first was to say, Let's move everyone over in a complete trust and verify way to the EI administrative structure, guarantee a minimum amount, and then obviously process EI eligible claims who are deserving of more because they've paid into that system. And at least then we'd have everyone in a system with a, an attestation and clawback feature. Maybe we need to tweak the clawback. Maybe the rate needs to be adjusted. But we then don't need to completely design a new system, as it were. I was told it takes 86 minutes to process every EI application. So there's a challenge to moving everyone over to EI if we process them normally, but it shouldn't really take any time at all if we take the trust but verify approach. I don't know if that overall would make any sense, though.
1: So, my, <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think there are probably two challenges. Number one is the Financial Administration Act stuff around who actually gets, how do you actually get the legal justification for releasing a payment out of the EI fund versus CRF? There's that issue because if I understand correctly.
0: And there's clearly a disincentive to work with the CERB right now. For those, again, who may not be receiving it or aren't aware of the details, you can earn up to a thousand dollars right now and still receive the $2,000 benefit, but if you receive $1,001, just $1 more, you lose the entire benefit. So there's clearly a strong disincentive to earn over $1,000. I've heard from a physiotherapist clinic as an example that's having a hard time finding contractors to work beyond that amount. One example among many across the country. And in March and April, it made sense to encourage people to stay home. You use the right language, I think, in your article of an induced coma. You now say, though, and again, I think rightly, that it's rehab, and for me, I mean, a negative income tax model has to be the right kind of approach where we are gradually climbing back income and no longer creating that disincentive to work.
1: Yes, I think you're right. We have moved some ways now into the system of not trying to actually discourage people from going to work and increasing their work. We're, you know, we've turned that corner, right? We're, we are now in a world where we're trying to increase the amount of safe work that people can do. And I didn't emphasize the word safe there because I think that's really important. So. The EI infrastructure piece, like do we just put everybody in the system and use the infrastructure, whether they're EI eligible or not, my understanding is that part of the reason that CERB was actually divided into the two halves over at Service Canada versus CRA was because of a recognition that no one system on its own would actually be able to handle volume right? So sort of a, like we, we need a distributed network approach here. So we actually need to handle some of the volume over at the CRA side. So I think in a world where we're still looking at, what are we up to now? About 8.4 million CERB claimants, right? Some number of whom will not have transferred into full paid employment or onto the wage subsidy, subsidized employment. That's still a lot of claims. You know, the, the EI system in a good year is used to handling about 1.8 million claims in a year. I don't know that that baby is built for this kind of volume. So I would be more inclined to be thinking about CERB, even run by CRA, does have that attestation component to it. What it doesn't have is the the month-to-month adjustment of the benefit level relative to declared income. But I think that that actually isn't impossible to build in. I really do.
0: And I think that would be the perfect system. If we were to say, let's process people, as a matter of fairness, people who have paid into EI... And now receive less, let's get them more what they're entitled to because they paid into the system. But everyone else who is entitled to nothing by way of EI, whether it is through EI infrastructure or maintaining CRA infrastructure and layering on a component that has the gradual clawback through an attestation of earnings in the previous month, that does seem like the ideal scenario. And then we get to a third question about gaps. In previous adjustments to serve, we filled some gaps, but not all. We have a very difficult labor market still. And if an individual lost employment pre-March 15th, didn't lose income directly as a result of the pandemic, but they definitely lost opportunity and continue to face that loss of opportunity, do you see that being a conversation that is worthwhile to revisit as well?
1: Well, I think some of that conversation has already moved forward since the last time we talked in the sense that, you know, seasonal workers who were on EI and had lost the opportunity to resume, EI exhausters who were previously on EI and then could not find paid work because of the continued shutdowns and economic impacts, they were migrated on to or promised the opportunity to migrate on to CERB. So kind of who's left are the people who were unemployed and looking for work but not EI eligible or receiving before March 15. And I'm going to be perfectly honest. I don't have a good count at my fingertips to understand how many there are and who they are and what their needs are. But again, I would come back to this issue that whatever our, I think it's a conversation worth having. And I would want to understand more about who they are, and what circumstances they're facing. But in addition to having that conversation around access to income support, I would also want to be making sure that we're including that part two piece of access to services. And I really do think that as much as we're focusing so far, right, on, okay, what's the capacity of the federal government to to deliver checks? Like that's actually one thing I think that the federal government has amazing comparative advantage on, right? Like you, if you look at what provinces did uh, during COVID, very few of them actually tried to do direct delivery of, of checks and it was, Kind of fraught in some cases just administratively, you know Quebec had to rely on a third party uh, NGO to actually take over its its check delivery service, but one thing that the federal government can't do without um, external partners is that service delivery side right and so they need to be properly resourced and like I say in the piece, they need to actually be marshaled now to start organizing their service delivery so that they can do the employability stuff the employability programs the skills training those self-employment development for some people is the right path not for everybody but for some they need to be able to do it in a way that is uh scale has scale but also respects the continued need for social distancing in the next little while
0: it's a good point i was i was putting a letter together for our all-party anti-poverty caucus to call for a serve extension for exhaustors also called for a redesign along the lines of a negative income tax like the gis for seniors and called for SERP to be expanded to fill remaining gaps, including not only the those who have lost income pre-March 15th, but also those who lost a job post-March 15th, but didn't have $5,000 in income in the previous 12 months. I think of a new graduate who just got a job in the new year and then lost their job in March or April. Obviously, there are good reasons to look to support people who have lost income or opportunity in the course of this crisis. So some labor force attachment... Does make sense, but it still presents real challenges with the way the criteria has been designed. This is a good reminder to focus more on the service component to make sure people are supported to re-enter the workforce at every opportunity
1: well thanks I think so that's why I raised it I mean I would say you know those graduates that you that you that you mentioned right like that's actually one thing where it seems to me the federal government in the middle of the crisis did actually put together like they created the specialized benefit right that graduates will be able to get if they don't qualify for cerb but they also put in funding for the youth employment strategy which will have some of that employability piece connected to it so it's not just work experience but some of the other programs that are that are funded through that strategy you know it's imperfect but it's i think it's a combination of having the the service side along with the um, with the income support And um, I just think like if the federal government doesn't act on this, I don't get the impression that provinces are kind of chomping at the bit, you know?
0: Well, we just wrote a check for $14 billion to the provinces and Doug Ford throws up his hands immediately and says, not enough, not enough. And you don't have to be partisan, but I'll be partisan for a second. I don't think they'll go out of their way to help the poorest of the poor either. So it's a challenge. and, And I think the federal government should continue to step in. Now, in terms of timelines, obviously, beyond the end of June is a necessity. We've extended the wage subsidy to early September. And at a minimum, I would think we'd extend CERB payments to that point in time. Though it's also hard to think we're going to have this resolved by September and that we'll see unemployment come down to where it was before and that we aren't going to have some continued need for these income support programs. So all the more reason, I think, to get the design right, one that really works for the long term through a negative income tax. Yeah.
1: I guess I kind of think of this in, in kind of a couple of different or like sort of two different phases. Like there's the coma phase. Uh, we've come out of that, but now we need the rehab phase to get us all back up and on our feet. And then after that, there will be like the, the, the full, you know, recovery and rebuild phase. Maybe I'm just a cautious person, but I would tend to be thinking right now about the rehab phase as being things we want to do things that will last us through not just the current situation that we find ourselves in, but also the potential for a second wave of infection. I mean, Bonnie Henry's words weigh heavily on me. She said, like there's never been a pandemic, to her knowledge, that has not had a second wave of infection that weighs on me. And then there's also the impact, you know, kind of what, what economists are talking about as being a second economic wave as well. Right. So I think we need stuff that that gets us through that that is resilient. And and adaptive to that possibility of those second waves, and then during the rebuild and and kind of full recovery phase, before I would feel comfortable saying, "Here's how we need to redesign, fully redesign EI. Here's how we fully need to redesign all of our tax and transfer systems." I would want to know more about what does that new normal look like. Um, that's that's just me. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm overcautious.
0: I think that's fair, though also fair to say that more people than ever have realized the fragility of our social safety net. And so I do think there's a serious conversation to have as to whether it was fit for purpose. It wasn't when we needed it most. And to say that we need a system that is. It's why I'm personally very interested in this idea of a basic income support or supplement through a negative income tax. I I spoke to Hugh Siegel and John Tory recently about this, too, both in Premier Davis's office when they established the gains and it's interesting to see this income supplement for seniors developed in a conservative premier's office, then elevated at the federal level, and now a program that every MP from every party will defend to support seniors in need. So if we're able to land on a model similar to that right now, we could wake up in maybe October, November, December, and then look back. And if we have the data publicly available, and we have smart people like you weigh in and say, what worked, what didn't, what adjustments are required, where are we at now, and, and where should we go from here? that would be worthwhile, I think.
1: So the only caveat I would add to that is that sometimes conservative voices here are very much in favor of, you know, either whether it's a negative income tax or other forms of basic income, also see it as a way to um, essentially consolidate a whole bunch of government programs, simplify and essentially reduce the footprint of government, right, which often is kind of code for withdrawal of services. So I would just always put the caveat there that actually multiple touch points are important for getting people into the system, right, and that comes with inherent complexity, and that sucks. It's a bad trade-off, but if you don't have multiple touch points to get to people, if there's only one way of getting in, right that, that's a really high risk role, and then Right,
0: I completely agree. We can't think of checks as replacing services. Yes, but we should think yes, of smart exactly. checks as replacing inefficient checks.
1: Yes, or no checks.
0: Right. And when we look at provincial assistance as a result and the welfare checks that it does deliver, I do think there's a reason to ask, how can we design a better system that encourages work and doesn't create such a welfare wall? And let's replace that system of checks with one that will, one, better eliminate poverty, and two, always ensure there is a strong incentive to work but if it's code for slashing the very services that are also necessary at the same time to reskill, encourage people to enter back into the workforce, the childcare that people need that you've emphasized as well. I mean, the Canada Child Benefit can't be an excuse not to invest in childcare. It's a complementary system.
1: Exactly. You need both supply and demand side responses, right? I mean, the other point I've tried to make is that this this current crisis that we're, you know, we're experiencing is not It's not a supply side only shock. It's not a demand side only shock. It's both. And so we need, we need tools to respond to both sides of those pieces. And that means, yeah, income support as well as services.
0: This is another area in your article that I found interesting, that those public health measures, that idea of a safe workplace, you mentioned safe work, but also needing these retail environments, these restaurants and other businesses to be safe for consumers. So whether as travelers or consumers, we'll look to destinations and businesses. That are employing strong public health measures to keep us safe it's, it's a, a comparative economic advantage and you highlight a few different examples childcare. how do we get back to a place that we support people to get back to work balanced against public health to ensure safety first and it's an interesting conversation also for transit obviously where we can't lean on the same resources we deployed before to generate the same capacity
1: Yeah. And like I said in the article as well, you know, consumers are also going to be deciding what they feel safe to consume, right? And how? And I guess I worry about some potential for inequalities on two fronts, right? Like, so, so, you know, you and I can afford to be choosy, right? We can afford to be choosy about where we shop and what we feel safe doing and all that kind of thing. Um, but I worry an awful lot about that issue of safe work for people who have less choice, right? And less bargaining power. And so one We've of we the- have seen
0: it already with migrant workers, it's been yeah. a disaster.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I do worry in the next couple of months that if we are not also ensuring not just clear communication of standards, but also providing recourse, like this is another really important piece of the EI system. You know, in normal times, EI actually does let you quit if you can demonstrate that your workplace was unsafe, right? But you have to have a third party complaint process that has concluded and validate your claim before we'll give you the income support. So I think we want to allow room in our income support systems for people to leave work that is unsafe. But if we're going to be expecting them to be able to have recourse to official sources to verify and validate that unsafety, then we need to be putting resources into those systems so that inspectors are out and able to keep up with demand and complaints and all that sort of stuff, right? So that's kind of another part of the complementarity between the income support side and also the, you know, key need for for services in order to in order to get back to where we need to be during the rehab phase. And yeah, you know, childcare, <laughs> we cannot expand childcare spaces by doing a rack and stack kind of approach right now, right? We need to be thinking about immediate investments in infrastructure so that childcare providers can have lower density but maintain the same number of spaces, right? So that means probably more satellite locations and there are costs associated with that. They're not like a grocery store, they can't just take that out of future profits, right?
0: And staff levels would need to increase as well presumably, and and do we have the ECEs and the human resources necessary to manage that?
1: Yeah. I mean, hopefully the wage subsidy could go some way towards supporting the, the the staffing question. But, you know, that's where I would hope that some of that $14 billion that the Prime Minister put on the table might be, you know, I know childcare was on the list. That's what I would be thinking about because those numbers on the gender divide uh, in terms of the economic recovery in, in jobs yesterday, that worries me.
0: You and others smartly pointed out very early on that this economic crisis would have a much greater impact on women. And you've right? We saw early job losses borne to a greater degree by women. And now we see early job gains benefit men to a much larger degree.
1: Yeah. And we have choices. We have policy choices about how we respond to that. Right. So we can we can pump billions of dollars into traditional, you know, uh, infrastructure projects that are shovel ready and are, you know, kind of what we know how to do to generate economic activity and make, you know, have jobs right away most of that money will end up supporting uh, male wage earners and so long as childcare remains constrained severely constrained you know summer camps are not necessarily reopening schools not reopening across the country in most places uh, until at least September and even then it's looking a little uncertain I think for a lot of families we need to have that gender lens at the outset not just doing gender-based analysis after the fact to say We made a policy decision, how many men, how many women got it, you know?
0: Sometimes hard at the federal level. A $14 billion announcement, we highlight priorities. I think they're important priorities. And we know provinces will have different needs and we can't dictate specifically how the money will be spent. But will every province spend on child care as we'd like? It's a challenge. The, The question of how stringent the strings should be to ensure not only our values are respected, but that the spending is economically efficient and also fair.
1: I think there's also just something about, you know, the functioning of the Canadian Federation has never been kind of on a principle of unconditional transfers from the federal government to provinces, right? It's it's usually been a, uh, you know, an iterative process and it's kind of waxed and waned over time. But let me just say, I think any province right now that doesn't see the need to put additional resources into test and trace, uh, into PPE, into workplace safety and into childcare... I just think that's really foolish, um, uh, from a policy perspective. Regardless of whatever you know political differences they might have, regardless of whatever uh, gains they think they might have by saying get off of our front lawn, were I in, in a provincial government right now, I would be saying do not look a gift horse in the mouth like this. 14 billion is a it's a chunk of change, right?
0: It is. Well, I'm just gonna keep reading your articles. We are lucky in Canada to have social and economic policy minds, including you writing in real time on the issues that we face. It certainly helps decision makers and elected representatives. I mean, sometimes I'm a decision maker, but in rare cases, normally I'm just annoying the decision makers. Holding them to account. Yeah, that's kind of the job. Yeah. So for those of us who are in the room to maybe exercise some influence, we can lean on the arguments that smart people are making. It's it's very helpful. So I will be in touch again.
1: Thanks. Take care.
0: Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and recommend future guests and topics on social media at BEYNate.